0: Amen. Won't you stand? As Scott leads us in a hymn of invitation, I invite you to come. Good morning. It's with the confidence that Jesus alone is mighty and able to save that we have made it a, a conviction, a, a goal of our church this year to reach every door and divine with the gospel. And as you heard brother ed give accounts fresh off of that mission field yesterday we've now reached about 300 homes and two outings um, and while his testimony bore witness to the impact that the conversations are having uh, just um, encountering a lady who was desperate to to meet somebody who was praying that someone would bring good news to her door um, we brought that to her yesterday but it, one of the things that we're doing when we go door to door is we're also leaving a bag that contains gospel information and information about this church. And so, if a door isn't answered or if there's dogs in a in a yard, we don't enter and we just leave the bag. Um, and we often don't know what happens with those bags when we just leave them. But uh, among all of that, our team encountered yesterday, one of the things that uh, that we observed was. Pastor Johnny checked the mail, I guess, last night or this morning, and in there was a card from someone that our team left a bag at that person's home. And the card said something to this effect. My family and I aren't really Christians, but I just wanted to say thank you because the bag you left me brought great joy. And I hope that this card extends to you the same amount of joy that I received in your gift. Thank you, First Baptist Church. I don't know what God's going to do with this effort, but we ought to just celebrate the opportunity to take the joy of the gospel to divine. And if you are not actively involved in this, know that there are many ways in which you can help us. That include assembling these bags or even joining our prayer team for these endeavors. If that is even the remotest interests of yours, reach out to me or Brother Ed, whose face you saw at the beginning of the service, and we'd love to help you uh, get uh, get plugged in. With that being said, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We will be reading a very familiar text this morning. We'll begin in verse 1, and we will read through verse 20. The Word of God, beginning in verse 1, says... And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Now, according to the Oxford Language Dictionary, expectation is defined as a strong belief that something will happen or that something will be the case in the future. That's the definition of expectation. So when something occurs that we believe would, that, 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 that is not what we would believe would happen, we call that not expectation, but surprise. Surprise, like me popping out on the bottom of the screen, right? That's a surprise. Our expectations are, shi- are shaped by our experiences. Our expectations have been shaped by what we have come to learn in the course of life. They're even shaped by our desires. For example, here's an, an expectation and a surprise for you. Your experiences in Christian worship services have led you to expect that a church service should conclude in about an hour's runtime. And sometimes we here at First Baptist Church surprise you by meeting that expectation. As parents Amen. Hey, so yep. Um, I hope y'all had lunch before service. Um, as parents raise their children. They teach them invaluable life skills that will foster their independence. They also teach their children about personal safety. For example, when it comes to bath time, even though we might have pain in our knees from, uh, by kneeling on that tough surface of linoleum or tile in our restrooms or pain in our backs from leaning over, we tell our babies about the importance of the direction of that handle for the shower faucet, don't we? I mean, our parents did it with us, and you have, or you will, do it with your children. So we each have come to expect that when we open our shower head and we turn that faucet to H, it does what? It calls for hot water, right? Or when you turn that faucet or that handle to C, it does what? It calls for cold water. Well, there was a businessman who had traveled far from home to conduct business in Latin America. And after a long day of back-to-back meetings, I heard Carlos chuckle, I think. He knows where this is going. He returned to his hotel room. He refused to eat dinner until he had a long, hot shower to ease the tension that he carried from a long day's worth of negotiations. And as soon as he returned to his room, he turned the the shower handle to H, thinking he was going to let the water warm up while he picked out his evening's wardrobe for dinner. Then he jumped in the shower. And to his surprise... It was ice cold. It was that day that that businessman learned that English is not the universal language for plumbing. In fact, that in Spanish, H stands for helado, which calls for cold water, and C stands for caliente, which calls for hot water. Expectations and surprises. See, surprises like that, they're pretty funny to every one of us that don't jump into a shower expecting hot water and instead get an arctic plunge, right? And sometimes surprises aren't so dramatic. Maybe it, maybe just maybe, it strikes you as odd that we're two days away from Valentine's Day and we're looking at a text in the Bible that you filed away as just Christmas material. And sometimes, to our surprise, church services or messages or even life stories, well, they don't turn out the way that we expect them to. Some time ago, there was a baby boy who was born into the Lane family. The father of the Lane family was named Jim, and he had the honor of naming his first son. Jim Lane named his son, his baby boy, Winner. How could a young man fail to succeed with a name like Winner Lane, right? And several years passed, and the Lanes had another son, and for unknown reasons, Jim named his second son Loser. How tragic to doom the boy's future prospects with a name like Loser, right? How many counseling sessions might it have taken to undo a name like Loser Lane? Of course, all the family's friends thought that they knew how the two boys' lives would unfold, but contrary to all expectations, Loser Lane succeeded. He graduated from college, and he later became a sergeant with the New York Police Department, bearing shield number 2762. In fact, these days, no one even feels comfortable to call him by his given first name of Loser. All his friends, all his family, refer to him simply as Lou. Now, his brother Winter Lane, the story is completely different. In fact, for Winter Lane, he's the sheer of his criminal record. He's better known these days as inmate number 00R2AQ7 after nearly three dozen arrests for burglary and domestic violence and trespassing and resisting arrest among all the other forms of mayhem he's conducted. Sometimes things are not how they first seem. Sometimes things are not what we expected. And I want to I invite us to wrestle with this passage through this lens of expectation. surprise in other words we're going to investigate this passage from what we might have expected or what the original audience to whom read luke's gospel might have expected and i want us to be surprised by how our lord's birth overwhelms those expectations with divine surprise Now, this is going to require us to pay attention or focus to details that we often overlook because we only encounter this text during the Christmas season. And as we begin to consider this, I want to raise a question for you. It's not a complicated question. It's not a deep question. In fact, it's a very personal question. Do any of you ever play the board game Risk? If you do, I need to see you after church because I need some people to play with, okay? My family has quit playing with me because I live in Winter Lane when I play that game, okay? But I need help. See, growing up, I came to enjoy playing Risk. And if you're not familiar, Risk is the game, the subheading of world domination. To play it, you need at least two players. The most you can have is six players. And at the start of each game, every player races to the box that contains the armies. Uh, and they, they try to pick their favorite color army. And I'm sure the the colors represent something more meaningful, but if you and I ever play against each other, you are going to find I'm going to do everything in my power to never wind up with a box of yellow army. You want to know why? I don't think you can lead an army of yellow bellies into battle. I think it's just a losing uh, uh, thing from the start. Anyway, after you have your army, each player places a little infantryman on the nations in the world that they've been awarded at the outset of the game. The game begins when the players begin to initiate battles to claim territories occupied by the armies of other players. The game's goal is to advance territory by territory until your army stands alone and you rule the world. You can't dominate the world through negotiations. You can't dominate the world in risk through peace treaties. Yet at the end of the game, there are no more battles to be fought. And what you come to expect is that you can only establish peace through war. Well, this expectation as I've described it, this expectation that peace only comes through war, it wasn't birthed in the minds of a few game makers from Hasbro back in the day. In fact, a game like Risk is actually enacting an expectation that's drawn from human history. It's an expectation that absolutely shapes what Luke offers to us right at the onset of chapter 2. Luke tells us that the birth of our Lord took place during the reign of one man named Caesar Augustus. This detail is quite telling. Luke doesn't uh, include this by accident. He doesn't include it just simply for fodder. As God in his spirit leads Luke to do so, Luke gives us this detail of great significance that contrasts expectation with surprise. Now there's but one reference in the entire New Testament to Caesar Augustus, and that is right here in Luke chapter 2 verse 1. If you don't know anything about him, Caesar Augustus, he reigned in the lap of luxury. He had uh, been supported by all the taxes that were supplied to him by all the many subjects of Rome. And through his collection of taxes, Augustus had been able to establish for himself a reign by a mighty fist and a completely unchallenged rule. In fact, Augustus raised one of the mightiest armies ever known in human history in the course of his life. And he established a sense of peace throughout the region like never before seen. And the reality of this Roman peace as Augustus led and installed is that it is just like many of the other uh, pieces that have been brought by world powers throughout the ages. See, the peace that Caesar Augustus ushered in came about via the planting of a Roman foot squarely upon the neck of their vanquished foe. See, Augustus had ushered in peace by way of the battlefield, by way of the cost of an enormous amount of bloodshed. In fact, there was a general of an army that was soon to fall to Augustus's Roman army who recorded this in his journal that's been preserved throughout time. This uh, uh, failure of a general writes this, To plunder, butcher, steal, these things they misname empire. They make a desolation and call it peace. This peace of Rome was was none different than the peace at the end of the game risk. It was a peace marked by the end of war through war. In fact, during this time, it was said of Augustus that he seduced everyone with the sweetness of his peace. And all of this was to generate a sense of goodwill towards the Roman Empire. But of course, this goodwill required that you serve the state of Rome as her subject. And that the state of Rome would keep her thumb right on top of you and her subjects through terror and slavery and oppressive taxation. Friends, this is power and might exercised at its finest. In fact, this is how humanity seeks to establish This is what it looks like when humans rule Jesus even said later in this gospel according to Luke in chapter 22 and verse 25 Speaking of the nature of human rule He says this Certainly with Augustus and the other Caesars in mind The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them And those in authority over them are called benefactors What does that mean? That means that the leaders of men who deliver such a world marked by this way of peace demand that you give them your undivided allegiance to them. That you hail them because they have delivered to you a dream world. The only problem with this dream world is that it's their dream. It's everybody else's nightmare though. And Augustus was such a man. A cruel and conniving man who built for himself an altar in Rome. He built that altar about 20 years before the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he built it to receive the praises of the people of Rome. The praises that would have sounded like, Hail, Lord Caesar, the peacemaker. Augustus established himself as a god. He demanded that the subjects of the known world worship him. In fact, in present-day Turkey, there once stood a great Roman outpost, and there's an inscription in the city's ruins that declared that this same Augustus in the inscription was the savior of the whole human race. Because as the inscription reads, land and sea have peace. The cities flourish under a good legal system. They're in harmony and with an abundance of food. There is an abundance of all good things, they say, of Augustus' peace. People are filled with happy hopes for the future and with delight at the present. This is all here in the birth of our Lord. This is the expectation, the manner in which power is exercised. So when the Virgin Mary was in her final days of carrying the Messiah in her womb, it's this so-called God, this supposed peacemaker, who flexes his political muscle with the decree that the entire known world is to be registered and taxed. So Joseph, being the faithful man that he was, gathered to him his betrothed, and they left their hometown of Nazareth, and they made their way to the city of David called Bethlehem. Have you ever explored who Mary and Joseph are, their backgrounds? You may be familiar with the facts about Joseph, that he's a descendant of a great king, of the great King David. And by now you know that Joseph and Mary are those whom God has entrusted with the grand privilege in God's grace to be the earthly parents of our Lord. And yet there may be much lost to us about who these people are in history. Because we only consider the wonder of this passage in the Christmas season. We only look to this text to narrate children's plays that bring such joy to our hearts. But I want to invite you to imagine with me for a moment. I want to invite you to imagine how you would write this story yourself. You have a writing prompt. You're told that you need to write the story that the God of the universe who has spoken all things into existence, by whom all things are held together, he is going to enter into human history by being born of a virgin. Oh that sounds mind blowing enough. But yet you're the one who gets the right the finish of the story and you're the one who gets to cast the characters. Who do you expect to cast as the human parents of God? I mean this is God we're talking about, right? You wouldn't expect to cast just any old person, would you? And so searching the depths of your creative imagination and thinking about how we expect this story to unfold if we were the author, might you find yourself just saying something like, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the the fairest of them all? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the richest of them all? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most powerful of them all? most suitable of them all for God's only begotten Son. Suitability, wealth, power. These all seem like reasonable expectations, don't they? This is the king of kings we're talking about, right? Would you ever fathom entrusting the care of the God-man to those who lived beneath not just the upper class? beneath the middle class of society you'd be shocked to know that in God's providence God willed that Jesus be born to a couple who lived in absolute poverty who as we'll see next week when they were pre- uh, presenting Jesus in the temple as prescribed by the law of Moses this couple could only provide the bare minimum sacrifice Mary and Joseph weren't elites in the world as far as the world's concerned, they're bottom rung of the ladder. Would you ever imagine setting the story of the God of the universe entering human history as anything as, uh, other than absolutely free and independent? Jesus is born to parents who are subjects of an unholy pagan nation and uh, that limited the free expression and limited the pride of being a Jew. All the while, that Roman nation exploited her subjects through these taxes. And only a story that is as ludicrous as those that are starred by Chevy Chase would even consider loading up a woman in the final weeks of her pregnancy to go take a trip. Yet to our surprise, as as Mary carried the Christ in her room, the Father's only begotten Son is carried a hundred miles from Nazareth of Galilee to to Bethlehem. Oh, and on that road, you better believe there's no cushioned suspension to her ride. There's no comfort of home like what any woman would desire to surround her. We're In fact, we're not even told anything about Mary's family. So we have to assume there's none of the support that any woman may have desired to draw from being around them. And ladies, forget about epidurals. There ain't none of those things here. There is no cleanliness of a sterile delivery room in this story and yet they go to bethlehem of judea much to our shock and wall in bethlehem mary began to feel the birth pains come upon her and forget about those comforts at home because try as they may they weren't even going to get to enjoy the comforts of the bethlehem inn our christmas stories add more detail than the text allows but we know this of the birth of the christ child It was not a place of comfort. It was not a place of familiarity. It was not a place of notoriety to which the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings entered into human history. Born into an age where where kings of the world were exalted for their power and their might, which they wielded to crush and subdue others. Born into a world in which the, the age in which the kings of the earth and broke all under their their reign and rule into an age where men stepped upon other men to build themselves up. This babe enters in the meekest and most humbling of settings, defying our expectations in every way. You're writing this story. How would you even expect to clothe The baby Christ. How would you expect to clothe the most powerful person in all of human history? If you could fathom it, what would you dress Jesus Christ in? I mean, in that manger lay power in the realest sense. In that manger lay all the creative might in the universe. In that manger lay the greatest and truest king of all. And he's wrapped in the garb available to the everyday man. I mean, imagine with me for a moment how grand and magnificent heaven's throne room must be. Imagine what it must have been like for the Christ to be in his throne room. Imagine what it must be like for the Son to to have been in the midst of perfect harmony and perfect love with the Father and the Spirit in one. To hear the angelic host lift praise in their service to Him, knowing that He is the, the slain Lamb before the foundation of the world. Can you imagine hearing heaven's host shouting, their are praises to him. Surely as we write this story, thinking about that heavenly host in heaven's throne room, that we would write into this story the same type of reception for King Jesus. We would write into it that reception that would, re- that would greet the Lamb of God, the Lamb born of man to take away the sins of the world, wouldn't we? Well, yes, there are angels singing. We can read that. We can singing of God's glory, but they're singing not to the Son. They're announcing the arrival of of the Savior to a group of shepherds, to a group of men who otherwise held a job that is the lowest in regard in this age. It's these shepherds who receive the king. It's this dredge of society who's been in the fields without a shower, known to be covered in the muck and the blood and and all of the nastiness of their flocks. These are the ones who would welcome and receive and praise the King of Kings. Oh, Mary and Joseph and these shepherds are the ones who that in the greatest of all is born to. The glory of the universe lay as a helpless baby, surrounded by all the muck that lines the bottom of his first throne on earth. A feeding trough. Friends, this is the birth of the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord, born in Bethlehem, the town of King David. And in the midst of all of this surprise that defies our expectation, this story is absolutely scandalous. And I'll tell you, the scandal of God's story isn't an unwed pregnant girl. No, it's not. It's that God in Christ Jesus would defy every last expectation. There's a contemporary song That's titled How Many Kings. That asks this question, these questions that are more than appropriate in setting our minds to the depth of humility and and surprising uh, expectation for us here. How many kings asks, How many kings stepped down from their thrones? How many lords have abandoned their homes? How many greats have become the least? How many gods have poured out their hearts to ransom or romance a world that's torn all apart? And here it is, against the backdrop of all the power in the known world in this time, Jesus showed that God's power is altogether different than the power and ways of this world. To our surprise, Jesus Christ came not to the elites, not to the grands, not to the greatest, but to nobodies he came to the least he came to the despised oh we wonder does that mean that that only those who've been disregarded by the world can come to christ no absolutely not god so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to to be glorified as he saved the entire fallen creation Yet as you think about the scandal of this story and you meditate upon it in the days to come, I need you to know, if you were to come to Christ, if you were to call upon his name unto salvation, if you were to commit yourself to Christian service, just as our Lord defies all our expectations in this type of surprising fashion, you and I, if we're to come to him, if we're to serve him, we have to respond to God's great example of humility by humbling ourselves. See, no one comes to faith in Christ regarding anything to be greater than Jesus. No one comes to faith in Christ by regarding anything to be richer than Jesus. No one comes to faith in Christ believing that there's anything more abundant and life-giving than Jesus the Christ. Oh, you and I, we must abandon our all so that we can come to Him. And in our coming to Him, in the course of our abandon, in the course of our surrender, it's as if we too are nobodies. Because in reality, all that you are and all that you have are as filthy rags before the Lord. If we are to be reignited in our affections for christ we have to acknowledge the darkness of our condition we have to just swim in the grace of god and be surprised by the hope of the gospel and it's when we're powerless that god's power is made evident to us it's made clear to us the lord tells the apostle paul in second corinthians chapter 12 my power is made perfect in weakness. The surprise in the birth of our Lord is that in poverty and in pain and in weakness, even in the mundane things, God's power is made perfect. The word has become flesh and moved into our neighborhood for the sake of all that comes with it. And if power is the ability to get things done, if power is the ability to change circumstances, to change your life, to change people outside this place, then this takes us to the heart of the Christian understanding of true and real power. It's not the power of Augustus. It's not the power of of presidents today or kings today. No, It's the power of self-sacrificial love. It's the power of serving others. See, there's nothing more powerful than this. I mean, consider the story of God's sacrifice. It doesn't end with this first throne of a manger. But the story of sacrificial love, it involves a scandalous, blood-soaked throne that we know as a cross. Friends, That is self-sacrificial love. Christ died for you, for your sin. Why? Because God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And friends, only love can soften your hard heart. I can't beat it into you. I can't convince you, but I can tell you about God's love. And that is the only thing that is going to soften your heart to the gospel. Love can soften the most rigid of minds. It can can weaken the stoniest of souls. Love can do what naked force never can. When we're loved, we're then ready to be changed. When we're unloved, we dig in our heels and we refuse to budge. Love is the most powerful force in the world and it is on the cross that we see the most dramatic and powerful and profound act of love. The love that God, the love of God that voluntarily took all human shame, took all human failure, took all human sin onto himself in the person of the Son. Friend, if you've grown stale in your walk with Christ, I invite you to consider all the beautiful surprises that envelop the birth of our Lord so that you might be captivated with the glorious gospel once more. And maybe your relationship with Christ, maybe right now you find yourself as in a relationship that is marked by suspicion or doubt. One where you wonder, could God love me? Could God forgive me? And maybe you tell yourself, you know, the world says I'm a nobody, that I'm the dredge of things, that I'm the least of things. And because of that, I have nothing to offer this Jesus of which you speak, Pastor Dan. Well, The good news is that you don't need to be anything, nor do you have to offer anything to Christ. Christ has already made himself nothing so that the world can be redeemed, so that you might be redeemed in God's grace through faith. Everyone can come to Christ. Everyone, anyone, can come before the cross of our Lord and repent of their sin and confess Christ as Lord and Savior. If they come to that place of abandon if they come to that place of surrender and they declare, looking upon their their majestic and glorious Savior, Lord Jesus, all I have is you. Nothing. Not a blue coat. Not a 401k. Not a thousand acres. You, Lord. That's all I have. All I need is you. At that moment, the God of the word, he overwhelms all our expectations. And God in his grace, he came to call us to come to him. You going to do that today? You going to come to him? I wonder why you don't. He made and did and closed all the gap. All you need to do. Is surrender. Won't you do that today? Let's pray. God, your humility defies any sense of our expectation, or it, uh, in fact, it dumbfounds us. How the Creator of all things, who through your power and might has spoken all things into existence you would abandon heaven's throne room and add to yourself humanity, that you, Jesus wouldn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, that you would take the form of a servant to serve all of creation, that you would die a substitutionary death taking upon yourself the sin of all creation. Lord, we know you've been glorified in that cross, a cross that is completely dumbfounds the world. It shames the wise. But Lord, you have been gloriously raised to life once more. We come this morning as a people of your resurrection, celebrating you, praising you, giving thanks that this gospel didn't end with you in a manger. In fact it didn't end with you on a cross but it ends with you ascended to the right hand of the Father return to your place of glory and the story now has us waiting for you to return O oh Lord until that day Lord may we proclaim this great gospel that seeks not the power of the world but seeks for you to demonstrate your power amongst us Lord, I pray that these kingdom seeds would be multiplied as you see fit. We pray this for your son's sake. Amen. Brother Scott will lead us in Him invitation. As he does, I invite you to stand. How will you respond this morning? Is today what you expected? Did you expect to come and just hear about Jesus? Walk out unchanged? Would it be a surprise to you that right now the spirit of the living God is calling you to call upon Christ into salvation? Walk into that surprise. Receive his salvation. He's calling you to trust upon Christ. Now's your time to come and make that known. He's calling you to join this church in membership. Now's your time to make that known. If there's something that you simply carry that you that you need to take before the Lord and leave in this place. The altar's open to you. I'd be happy to pray with you. Whatever it is, I invite you to come just as you are as we're about to sing.